Tenali, 4,000 feet, uh, speed uh, 180 knots, one double team. Everybody and welcome to Cockpits and Cocktails. We have Nicole Malakowski, and we are bringing her story to light today. Thank you, Nicole, for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to finally meet you. It's nice to meet you too. I um, had looked up some of your stuff um, previously. Aaron sort of told me about you, and I was like, oh wow. She's really cool. I mean, she's on a whole different level. <laughs> I don't know about a whole different level. But, about airplanes. <laughs> but then I heard that you were homeschooling your kids. And I was like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> yes, definitely. And during the challenges there of homeschooling, uh, we got to give out some props to teachers everywhere because I don't think I fully appreciated how hard it is. So yeah, heart yeah. goes out to teachers. Yes, for sure. Now you're in uh, Colorado. I am. We live uh, just outside of Colorado Springs, so I can see the Air Force Academy from my backyard. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to um, learn all about you and hear hear your story. Tell us how it all began. Well, for me, I think there's a very distinct um, moment. We went to an air show as a family when I was somewhere around five years old, give or take. We were living in Central California at the time, and of course, the air show came to town and like most American families, right? That's a thing to go do on the weekends. It's energizing and patriotic and fun and, you know, a family event. So we headed on out there. And I recall um, there was an airplane called the F-4 Phantom, which you probably know is a, was the workhorse of the Vietnam War. And I remember it coming by really low and fast as a kid. And it was just like a feast for the senses, right? I mean, I remember covering my ears because it was so loud. I, I was shaking like with excitement, like little kids do. You know, the, the the jet noise rumbled my chest. You could smell the jet fuel because remember the F4 would have a little bit of smoke coming out, you know, of its engines there. And I remember it speeding by and, and me just literally like falling in love. I thought that is what I'm going to do. Um, so at five years old is the, the time I made the decision, you know, I want to be a fighter pilot. Um, that was probably around 1979. I'm, I'm now dating myself, of course. <laughs> and the irony of it, right, is that at that time, it was actually against the law for women to become fighter pilots. Of course, I was five, so I didn't really care about the law. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Was your family involved in aviation at all? Did you have some pilots in, in your family history or... So um, my grandfather on my mom's side, who he passed away when I was probably, I don't know, around 12 years old, um, he did have his private pilot's license. But by the time I was born, he wasn't actively flying anymore. So he's the only kind of known pilot in our family. Um, we did have a history of military service. So both of my grandfathers had been in the military and we were one of those families where we talked about serving in the military. We went to those Veterans Day parades. You know, I knew as a kid it was considered noble and honorable and good to serve in the military. So when you put kind of like that family military service against the backdrop of that F-4 Phantom, those two things came together. And, you know, I decided that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So what did you tell your like, when did you let your family know or your parents know what your dreams were? About five seconds after that F-4 yeah. Phantom flew by. <laughs> Yeah, I remember looking at my family and I'm like, that's what I'm going to do someday. And I think I was really lucky in that respect because 
Um, nobody in my flam- family flinched. You know, no one ever made the comment that that girls don't do that. Um, nobody made the comment that that's too hard to become a fighter pilot. You know, you're dreaming too big. Nobody ever said anything like that. And and I think there's a valuable lesson there, right? I mean, our words can have such a dramatic impact on other people and whether we can help make or break their dreams. Because I think about that moment in 1979, if if my family had reacted any other way, any other way to my you know youthful excitement at that time, I don't know that I would have ever followed the career path that I did. Right. It could have changed everything, right? Could have, indeed. Yeah. Lesson for all of us. Yes, exactly. So what happened next? I mean, you were going through school, you went to junior high, middle school, whatever, high school. How did you plan out your course there? Sure. So I, I like to say I became maniacally focused at that moment. I make the joke that I, uh, I'm glad it worked out because I literally did not have a backup plan. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, aviation just became my everything. When I was in elementary school, I would do classroom reports on airplanes. I remember having um, navigational maps pinned to my wall and my ceiling. And that was in elementary school. And I joined as soon as I could at the age of 12, I think seventh grade, I joined the Civil Air Patrol. And as you know, the Civil Air Patrol is an auxiliary of the United States Air Force. And it was wonderful to be surrounded with, you know, like-minded kids. It kind of kept me focused, kept me from getting distracted. Um, And their program there was all about aerospace education and wearing a uniform and marching like you're in the, you know, in the military. And it was exciting to me and it was motivating to me. But the beauty of Civil Air Patrol is by the time I, let's see, moved to Nevada in high school, the Nevada wing of the Civil Air Patrol afforded me a flying scholarship. And so I started taking flying lessons when I was 15, soloed my first plane when I was 16. So I give a lot of credit and I highly recommend to this day, the Civil Air Patrol or things like Air Force Junior ROTC, which I was also a member of in my high school, um, to keeping me focused and motivated on that dream and providing me the opportunities to fly. Yeah, I didn't know anything about the Civil Air Patrol. We didn't have it in the small town where I grew up um, until really I started my flight training and everything I've heard about that organization is positive. It, it is. I, I, um, I Like I said, I, I'm a huge fan. I'm a walking advertisement, I think, um, for the Civil Air Patrol. And I think it's important for your listeners to know it's, it's not just that they have a cadet program for young kids, which is certainly valuable for some of the reasons we previously discussed, but they also have, you know, an adult program. So they're always looking for people to serve. And it's a legitimate auxiliary of the United States Air Force that civilians, if you will, like you, uh, can join and make a difference for our country all while surrounding yourself with aviation. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Right. Now, do you have siblings? I do. So I have an older brother. He lives in Southern California. He's a recovering lawyer. He's got an amazing uh, son who's about 14 now, my nephew. And then my little sister, Laura, she's a real estate agent. She lives uh, an hour north of me up in Denver. And she's got two wonderful kids themselves who are uh, going off into the career adult path right now. What did they think? Were they uh, about your aviation or did they ever have a, a dream or desire to learn to fly? No, nobody else kind of in my immediate family had a dream or a desire to fly. I think when you're growing up as kids, you know, everyone's got got their goals. Um, I recall my siblings being supportive back when we were kids. But now that we're adults, you know, by the time you hit your late 20s and 30s, um, they became extraordinarily proud yeah. um, of the accomplishments. And they became attentive to 
things involving the Air Force or things involving aviation. And it was fun to be able to bring them along, you know, on that Air Force journey, especially their kids. You know, um, Aunt Nicole is pretty cool at an air show, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) They bring their friends out and I'm getting the cool Aunt Aunt Nicole. Come on. <laughs> I know. I want an Aunt Nicole. That'd be so cool. <laughs> yeah. So once you, okay, you graduated high school and then what did you do from that point? Yeah. So during high school, obviously, you know, staying focused on becoming a military pilot, I'd done some research. I knew I had to have a college degree. I knew I had to have that in order to be commissioned as an officer in the, in the military. And I knew I had to be an officer in order to go to pilot training. So there was a very like distinct path that I had mapped out. In high school, I set my sights on different colleges for ROTC scholarships. And I also set my sights on the uh, Air Force Academy. Um, It's important to note that I cast the net wide like anybody uh, with a dream probably should. I applied also to Naval ROTC as well as the Naval Academy. Um, And I got really lucky. Um, I got accepted to every program. And so I had my choice of ROTC scholarships or either of the academies and uh, just the Air Force and that F4 Phantom that I saw, uh, that was my choice. So I went to the Air Force Academy um, from 1992 and commissioned in 1996. So, I mean, I, I would say it's really cool. Like I did not have any idea what I wanted to do when I grew up and I still don't know what I want to do. And that's okay. And I think it's great to have that you know, so you can really focus on what you need to do in school. And it probably is a real motivator to keep you doing well in school, just to have that dream out there that, you know, you can you can reach if you follow these steps. I, I agree with you. I think having a goal and I think stating that goal out loud to kind of your inner circle and your team is important. Um, I learned as a fighter pilot, whenever we're creating a mission, right, we're going after a specific target. We define the target first and then we build the mission or the target attack backwards from there. And I think it's an interesting analogy for life, for any goal, little goals, big goals and anything in between. Having something that you're working towards allows you to kind of navigate the pathway. But I think it's also important to remind ourselves it's okay for the target to change. Yes, exactly. It's absolutely okay for the target to change. Yes, I agree with that 100%. So walk me through, like, whenever I try to envision what flight training is like for, like, a military pilot, I am just, I have no idea what your days are like. Yeah, what what is the day-to-day? I mean, I'm assuming it's super intense. So what is it like? Sure, yes. So um, I went to pilot training starting in December of 1996. Uh, I was at Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi. And so I just want to share that that was a long time ago. So what I'm sharing now has certainly changed for the way pilot training looks today. Um, But the thing about pilot training is it is is difficult. Um, It is challenging. It is intense. And you as taxpayers of America wouldn't want it any other way, right? You want to make sure that the product that is coming out of pilot training and going into military service is, is qualified and, and ready to go. And so I knew it was going to be um, intense. The thing is, you're graded on everything. You are graded on everything. So you've constantly got academic classes and academic tests. You're graded on your simulator flights. You're graded on your daily training flights. And then the single most important thing that's mathematically weighted the most, if you will, for where you graduate in your class are things called check rides. Um, you know what they are. They're flying yeah, tests. Right. <laughs> so, oh, and you're also subjectively graded on your leadership and teamwork. 
So what, those are five different categories um, that you're constantly on a daily basis being graded on. Um, so a typical day um, may include going into some sort of academics where there's a senior instructor teaching you maybe about the systems in the aircraft or maybe how to fly an ILS approach. You know, I remember that first time I, I opened up an ILS approach and it looked like just a crossword puzzle to me. And yeah. I <laughs> teach me how to read this. Um, and they do. That's the beauty of, I think, military training is it's very crawl to walk to run. It, everything in the military is very, very methodical. And so they do it at a pace where everyone is learning together um, and at a pace where it's very building block approach. So you start with that academics, you learn about the systems. And then, of course, they'll put you into the simulator. Right. Yeah. And the simulator is just building those foundational basics of how to do a turn while maintaining, you know, a level out, a level attitude and not losing altitude while you're doing it all the way to important stuff like emergency procedures and following emergency procedures checklists. So once you've done the academics and proven yourself in the simulator at a certain skill, they will then let you do that in the airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you'll go do your flights. Um, you'll be graded on a list of like 40 things on each flight. Uh, you'll debrief with your instructor. And then as the syllabus progresses and as your instructor thinks you're ready, they'll send you to the check ride. And that's where you kind of check that skill set or that phase, whatever it was. Maybe it was basic flying maneuvers. Maybe it was navigation. Maybe it was formation flying. Once you've checked that square, you can move to the next phase. So when you entered, you already had your private, right? When you entered college? No. So yeah, I, I thank you for that question. Cause sometimes yeah. people, uh, I always like never miss an opportunity to correct the record. That's what <laughs> taught me. Um, I actually never got my pilot's license, uh, in high school. I wasn't able to finish that up. So I did solo. I flew beyond my solo. Um, I was a little bit restricted by some resources at that time, which as you know, right with the scholarships that you give, it's not a cheap hobby when you're right. a civilian to fly airplanes. And so um, that's why I admire you for removing that barrier that a lot of people face as far as resources. But anyways, uh, I faced just some resource challenges at the time and wasn't able to um, finish my private license. But I joined the military and lucky for me and thanks to taxpayers like you, I was able to uh, finish my pilot training. So thank you. So what did you start training in? Like what airplanes are you typically put in and how does that progress? Sure. Well, it's important to go back to the Air Force Academy when I was a cadet. Between your freshman and sophomore year at the Air Force Academy, you have an opportunity to participate in their soaring program, their glider program. Um, And so I chose to do that for my summer activity, if you will, and of course, absolutely fell in love with it. Um, So then I applied and competed to be selected as a a cadet soaring instructor pilot. And so I went through an upgrade program and it was super cool, right? Here I am. I'm this 19, 20 year old kid in college Mm -hmm. and I'm teaching other young people how to fly gliders. Yeah. I get asked a lot by, by young, young folks, Hey, what should I be doing now? You know, in junior high and high school and how do you learn to fly something like an F-15E? And I always tell them, man, if you can fly a glider, well, you can fly anything, have a lot of time flying gliders, um, did that all the way through the academy. Uh, they had a, a pilot training screening program at the time where we flew an aircraft called the T3 Slingsby. It was a single engine, you know, propeller plane that was absolutely a lot of fun. Um, so I went through that 
passed that, which allowed me to be eligible for pilot training. And so, yeah, so I flew gliders and T3s at the academy. When I got to pilot training, uh, they started us out on the T-37 tweet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That was an old plane in in the 90s, and I think it was an old plane in the 70s, but man, it was a hardy plane, and it was a jet, right? You know, I mean, it may have been small, it may have been a little bit old, it may not have been as maneuverable as a fighter, but when you fire up the engine to your first jet, it's an exciting time. So the first half of pilot training is in T-37s. At that point, they'll rack and stack your class, and depending on the needs of the Air Force at the time, they'll split the class to the number of people who are going to fly fighters and bombers, to the number of people that are going to fly, you know, uh, refueling, transport, cargo, etc. And so I went on the fighter-bomber track, where I ended up flying the T-38 Talon. So much fun. Yeah, I love that plane. It's an unforgiving plane in the final turn, though. Oh. <laughs> final turn. So you got to keep that AOA rocking in the final yeah. turn, but a lot of fun. And it was a supersonic uh, jet, very maneuverable. And I remember the first time, you know, breaking the speed of sound at pilot training in that T-38 and just saying, you know, wow, we've done that. It's pretty cool. That is um, so cool. I guess the simulator gets you prepared for actually getting in the jets, right? Because that's I a think, whole different level. I think so I think so. I mean, I think simulator flying is vital to creating those foundational habits, right? Um, doing things in a disciplined fashion, uh, working on your cross check, uh, following things like checklists. Um, I think simulators are vital to building those what I call kind of muscle memory habits, mm-hmm. those repetitive muscle memory habits, right, that I'm going to take off. The next thing I'm going to do is grab the gear handle and put the gear up. Then I'm going to put the flaps up and, and it'll never be the same, the exact same as flying in the air. Yeah, but it's pretty darn close, and it's absolutely vital to train in a simulator for any kind of flying, in my opinion. Yeah. So were there? I'm just gonna like stop right there. Were there any other women with you in the training during this time? Yes. Um, so don't hold me to these exact numbers. It's been a while. Um, yeah. My class at the time was just over two dozen people, and we had. Um, I believe four women at the time, including myself. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And did they all like get through the pilot training? Yeah. Uh, one actually had a medical problem, so she had to go back to another class. Um, the rest uh, came with me. One um, ended up going in the fighter bomber track with me to AT 38s, and she ended up uh, going to bombers. And I'm, I'm trying to, I feel so bad because I'm trying to remember exactly what aircraft she went to. Um, her name was Vern and she, Vern Huffless, and she was so much fun yeah. and so cool to be around. Very laid back, like even keel. I speak very fondly of her because unfortunately she passed away from cancer. Oh. And so, yeah, I remember her young and vibrant and yeah. flying those planes like a champion. Um, and then the other gal in our class, whose name's eluding me right now, uh, you can tell the age is getting to me. Um, she went on to fly helicopters, which was awesome. And that was what she wanted to do. The women in the class were amazing, as were the vast, vast majority of the guys. <laughs> yes, right. I'm sure. Were there any um, problems at all because you were a female that you think you ran into? Well, I think, you know, then as we still have now, sometimes there's always going to be a very small select group of folks, uh, men and women, who think, you know, maybe women shouldn't be out um, doing that. Maybe women shouldn't be in the military. Maybe women shouldn't be uh, attempting to become fighter pilots. I would say, generally speaking, 
Um, I was met with nothing but support uh, and help. When it comes to my peers, it, it was always the guys were almost always pretty good because they didn't know an Air Force without women pilots in it. They didn't know an Air Force that didn't let women become fighter pilots. Right. They were my age. So any issues I ever had tended to be generational. I came across onesie twosie instructors yeah. uh, during pilot training who sometimes, often covertly, but sometimes overtly, mm-hmm. uh, made it very clear that um, it wasn't that they didn't want me to be a pilot in the Air Force. Uh, they had an issue that I was trying to become a fighter pilot. Because remember, I'm going through in that very first tranche of like a dozen, the first dozen women in the Air Force who are trying to become fighter pilots. Uh-huh. Yeah, for them, I, culturally, it was hard for them. They had lived in an Air Force where it wasn't allowed, and now they're having to adapt. And culturally, for some of them, that was that was hard. Yeah. Um, but that was their issue, not mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I understand that, and I don't really have. I mean, that happens when things change over time. It's not what they're used to. So it's not that they're necessarily trying to be mean or spiteful. It's just not normal for what they are used to. Thank you for bringing that up because it's such an important point. Um, Oftentimes if I'm interviewed or, you know, people ask me questions, even to this day, they're like, you know, tell me about how hard it was or how mean the guys were. And I always have to step people back and go, you know, it was a a cultural organizational change is always going to be hard. Mm-hmm. regardless of what that cultural change is. So the way that I handled it, and maybe it was a defense mechanism, I didn't let it bother me because I allowed myself to empathize with them. As hard as it was for me to be on the forefront of some of this cultural change, I looked at them as human beings who were also struggling with that change. And that's yeah. okay, right? We can have a difference of opinion, right. but we can still empathize with each other. And and that's that's what helped me through. And let me be clear. You know, when you look at the vast majority of my Air Force career, my supervisors, my instructors, my evaluators, my commanders, just by nature of timing and being amongst that first group of women to fly fighters, those people were all men. Eight percent of the time. I am the product and my career success has been the product of a lot of really professional, skillful men who invested their time in me. So, but I mean, I feel like, yeah, Alyssa probably feels the same way. You know, I've had mostly very supportive men around me that I I really haven't had hardly any negativity. And I I don't ever want to come across as someone just because I'm fly girl that I'm just all pro women and anti man, because (laughs) I, I don't think that's how the majority of the people are. I agree with you. I mean, and, and, you know, I can sit here and share stories. I mean, I, do I have a couple of those right, yeah. stories of, you know, of course I do. But when you stand back and look at the big picture, you know, it, it's been a mostly supportive environment. And, you know, when you look at what Fly Girl does, remember um, the audience for what you're doing are younger girls, right? And right. younger women. So it makes complete sense that you would be Fly Girl. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I support you. <laughs> you know, I remember in high school, when I started flying that Cessna 152 out at North Las Vegas airport, I finally had enough money and it cost about $50 an hour to fly fuel and receive instruction. Wow. <laughs> right? And I, I worked at a plant nursery and I watered plants 
and I would get paid and I would keep my little, you know, money until I had $50. And then I would get on my 10 speed and I would ride my bike to the airport. And I, sometimes it was quarters and dollar bills and I would just put it out on the counter. And there was this one old guy, this one old instructor. He's like, what the hell? I'll fly with this little girl. And his name was Bill Cotter. And I will never forget Bill Cotter because Bill Cotter never bat an eye. He said, you want to learn to fly? I'll teach you how to fly. Right. I take my coins and my dollar bills and I slide them across the FBO counter and Bill would take me flying. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I've had really great luck with people being very supportive. There's not a I mean, I don't there's only one other female that flies within um, our flying club. And so I was very nervous to, like, enter my local realm of pilots Mm -hmm. and get in there and everybody has been really very kind and helpful. And I I found that most people want to help you. It's they have to get beyond like your presence as well. Cause I feel like I'm in the out there on the social media world and everybody thinks that I like fly all these cool planes, but I don't really like, I just know a lot of people and, you know, have went through that. So they see me as like, Oh, she's already out there flying with all these people around the world, but I don't have like my hometown squad so now it's kind of nice to have that yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you bring up another phenomenal point right you know whether you're a pilot as a profession or you're doing it you know as a hobby I guess I use the word profession right whether you're doing it as a career or a hobby mm-hmm. flying is a profession right there's a certain standard and so the yeah. intrigue that people have with women pilots that existed back in the early 90s or exists now today is usually from outside of our profession, right? Outside of our professional peers, because professional peers are going to see there's a flying standard. There's a skill set, right? The aircraft either flies or it doesn't. She's either doing that to a standard or she's not. So the intrigue or the eyebrows that are raised 99% of the time come from outside of our profession. So tell me once you, okay, you're, so you're flying fighters. Walk me through what, how you go from that to becoming a Thunderbird pilot. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. You know, so right. It was like super simple overnight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, but keep keeping that whole path. Remember, we were talking about working from the target backwards. You know, the first thing was to graduate pilot training successfully, um, which I was able to do. And I graduated high enough in my class where I uh, had a choice of what fighter aircraft I wanted to fly. There's a lot of luck in that too, because what the Air Force needs every year by airframe changes. Mm-hmm. Some years there's no, there was no fighter aircraft available. You could be number one in your class and not get to fly fighters, right? Just yeah. because of luck of the draw. I was in a lucky year. Um, every airframe was available. The F-4 had been retired by that time and replaced by the F-15E Strike Eagle. So I set my sights on the F-15E Strike Eagle. And when my class graduated, there was one. I graduated high enough to pick that one, um, and I headed off to uh, F-15E training at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. I think that was nine or ten months uh, long. Yeah. Uh, They called me me Average Ellingwood. My maiden name was Ellingwood. Uh, There was always a joke, man, because I I had the highest highs and the lowest lows, right? I failed (laughs) like a champ. So I came out right there, uh, right there, pretty darn, pretty darn average. Um, One of the exciting things that happened 
uh, in my class, flying F-15Es and learning to fly it was my backseater, my WIZO at the time, weapon systems officer, was actually a woman. So that was, uh, wow. they used to make the joke that we were the first unmanned aerial fighter air crew, you know. <laughs> she went on to eventually go to pilot training, and she's currently a wing commander, and I guarantee you she'll be a general someday, well-deserved. But her and I... Um, I think made a great crew. I think she was more skillful than me at her job than I was at mine. And I know a lot of times I leaned on her uh, to help work with me on crew concepts and stuff. So um, she has my debt. And then from there, uh, we graduated. Like I said, uh, sometimes I felt like I was graduating by the skin of my teeth. Um, but I ended up at my first assignment at RAF Lake and Heath in England. So the 492nd Fighter Squadron did my first combat missions there as a lieutenant over Kosovo, the Balkan, the Balkan War in 99. I flew after uh, the major combat ended. I flew in what was called Operation Deliberate Forge. From there, I went back to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, flew in another fighter squadron, the 336th. That's where I got a lot of the qualifications you need in order to qualify to be a Thunderbird. So I became a two-ship flight lead. I did the four-ship flight lead upgrade and then um, finally got through the hurdle of the F-15E instructor upgrade. So becoming an instructor pilot in any fighter aircraft, even to this day, uh, in our Air Force is a big deal. That's a um, yeah. very rigorous <laughs> program. Yeah. And uh, I took my hits during that, you know, failed a couple rides along the way and had to do a, a couple redos. Again, surrounded by extraordinary people um, who helped me through that program. Well, let's see. So that's, uh, let me think. Yeah. So from there, I went to Korea and I served a one-year non-flying assignment as an air liaison officer. So I worked with the Army 2nd Infantry Division, became a qualified JTAC. Those are the folks that are awesome that are, not me, but the enlisted <laughs> air folks that are out there uh, embedded with the Army units helping to call in airstrikes uh, during combat. We could do a whole podcast on that because that's an yeah. extraordinary group of people. From there, I went back to England, uh, got a quick recall as an F-15 instructor, became a flight commander, and at that point had what I needed to become a Thunderbird. At that time, it was a minimum of 1,000 hours in fighter aircraft. And, you know, you had to fill out the application and such. Uh, they've since lowered the hours. I think it's down to 750 hours mm. nowadays in order to apply. But at the time, it was 1,000. So it took me that whole journey in yeah. order to get 1,000 hours needed to apply. Yeah. So when you went into school, because you had said you'd soloed in high school, how, how many hours do you think you had at that point? Oh, how many hours did I have, like, in Cessnas before I yeah. went into Yeah. Wow. Geez, I don't know. 20? Probably called 40, 50, something, yeah. like, something yeah. like that. So then the, all the uh, the thousand hours was mostly accumulated in, or it had to be in a fighter, the thousand yes. hours. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was, uh, now, when you graduate pilot training and you're in the T-38 and you're mm-hmm. going to fly the F-15E, there's an interim course in there called Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals, IFF. Very short, a couple weeks long. It's in an aircraft called the AT-38. So it's a souped-up T-38 that can drop little practice bombs and stuff. And those, I probably got like a couple dozen hours in that. Those AT-38 hours counted, but the vast majority was F-15E hours. Okay. Did any of your, did you have a lot of anxiety with um, your check rides and your tests 
more in the beginning, the end, like what, where? Girl, I, I hated going to check rides <laughs> in, in pilot training, and I hated going to check rides as a lieutenant colonel flying F-15Es. I, <laughs> I, I'd like to. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate it too. Gosh. There's some people who are, you know, completely comfortable with it. I, I don't want to sit here and, you know, make something up. The fact of the matter is that tests are always tests. And uh, I don't care who you are. It's okay to have a little bit of nerves going into it. I think, I think having a little bit of nerves is good. Because uh, that adrenaline, I think can hope help you focus. Uh, that adrenaline reminds you that this is an important moment, right? This check ride is a big yeah. deal. Uh, so if you can harness the nerves in a positive way, it's a good thing. And I think I was able to do that, but I was never someone who looked forward to check rides. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> I always wonder if anyone ever gets over that. I, I can't stand them. And I just think, does, is there anyone that's ever comfortable with them? I'll tell you what, I, I would rather do the actual flat check ride in the aircraft. You know how you have emergency procedure simulators, the, yeah. the emergency simulators. I dread those the worst. Oh, right. I, you have no idea what's what's, what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On you. Yeah. But to be clear, I um I did fail. I think I failed. It was either a pre check ride or a check ride in T thirty sevens. And I you know, here I am, twenty one years old. You know, my goal since I was five is like going up in smoke. I'm like, I cannot believe I I failed this. I mathematically, I almost took myself out of the running from being a fighter pilot. But you you can come away from those failures with a lot of good things, right? You know, you can come away a lot more focused on your goal. I think I came away a lot more committed and determined to graduate pilot training. And I think at that time, too, I I came away a bit more humble. And Mm -hmm. I think that that was also necessary at the time. So failures are just new launching points. (laughs) Yes, I love that. So how old were you when you became a member of the actual Thunderbird team? And what what's that process like? I mean, when, once you're accepted into that program, then what happens? Sure, yeah. So I was about 30 years old. Um, I was a senior captain in the Air Force at the time. The application process is, is pretty in-depth. You know, every year the Thunderbirds are looking for three new demonstration pilots. And every year at the exact same time, they send out the exact same email. Mm-hmm. Here's the qualifications. Here's the application. Here's the deadline. You know, and I grew up in in high school in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is home of Nellis Air Force Base, which is home of the Thunderbirds. So yeah. I remember eating my lunch out on the football field and watching the Thunderbirds fly and thinking, wow, that would be cool someday. So this is kind of one of those like extreme dreams that you keep to yourself. Yeah. 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 And every year of my Air Force career, when that email would come out at the same time, you know, I would just delete it. There were times I thought other people become Thunderbirds, Nicole, not you. Really? That huh. dream is a little bit too big for you. And then um, I had been in that third operational fighter squadron. I was a flight commander. I was leading peers in combat in Iraq, and I had just enough confidence. So when I read the email in 2005, I realized I was qualified, and I thought, why not? Why not me? Yeah. You know, so I went through uh, that application process, came back from flying in Iraq, and that's when I discovered that I had been selected for the team. And um, I was really excited, and then I realized, uh-oh, I got to go learn to fly a whole new plane. I mean, so I was an F-15E pilot, so I went to Luke Air Force Base for a transition course. It's actually, there's a specific syllabus for Thunderbird pilots 
for okay. other planes to learn to fly the F-16. It's just a handful of flights. And again, it's like eight flights or something. Um, please don't hold me to the exact number. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, but just a couple of flights to learn the F-16. Oh, God, the hard part was just prior to that, you had to go back through the um, centrifuge. So you had to pass the 9G F-16 trial on the centrifuge. That's an F-16 pilot or someone who's been flying F-16s their whole career. That's a 9G plane. That's no big deal. The F-15E is absolutely a 9G capable aircraft, but our centrifuge profile was only at 7.5 Gs. And I had done that, what, 10 years prior? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm like, hey, I'm a Thunderbird. Oh, crap. I got to go do the 9G centrifuge and transition to this new plane. Uh, but luckily, that all worked out for me. Got those rides and showed up to Nellis Air Force Base in the fall of 2005 for training. Yeah. yeah. And once you sign on, what's your commitment with the, the, the Thunderbirds? Sure. So for pilots, it's um, two air show seasons plus a little on the front end to learn how to fly and a little on the back end to train your replacement. Okay. So it's kind of that two and a half to almost three year time at Nellis Air Force Base. Um, air show season generally goes from March through November. Mm-hmm. Training season is end of November, you know, through February. So yeah. you do two, two full air show seasons. It's important to bring up here, you know, the Thunderbird team is extraordinary and, and that squadron, and its mission is unique in all of the Air Force. It's um, 125 plus people from 25 wow. different career fields. Wow. I mean, there's 12 officers, six, there's eight of them are pilots, six fly in the demonstration. But the heartbeat and what makes the mission happen are those 100 plus yeah. listed folks. I always made the joke that I worked really hard for 30 minutes out of the day flying the air show, which is true. Yeah. But the other 23 hours and 30 minutes out of the day, you know, the enlisted folks on that team were just making it happen, man. It was it was incredible. And the enlisted time on the team and the point of my statement here is uh, they would spend much more than two years. It could be a three, four, five year assignment for them. OK. Yeah. Is the air show season pretty rigorous? Sorry, Alyssa. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Air show season um, is. uh it's, it's weird. It's like a spectrum. It's super exciting and a lot of fun and just fantastic to be able to go out there and do the job. And on the other side, it, it really is a bit of a grind at times and it can get very tiring, especially by mid season of your second year, you're like, woo. So what a typical week uh, would look like is um, it would typically start on Thursday. So on Thursdays is when we would load up our luggage, get in our jets and fly you know, out to, out to the air show location, wherever that might be. Right. So we'd fly from Nevada to Virginia. Um, on Friday we would do practice. So we would practice, um, over that air show in Virginia, learn what the landscape looked like, learn what the aerobatic box was, learn the lines. And then we'd also do our public relations work. So that may mean, um, going out and talking to schools or meeting with the local chamber of commerce, doing the receptions and the stuff that come with the, the whole air show, um, culture. And then Saturdays and Sundays, we would fly the air shows with the public. And oh, I should go back. One of the things I loved about Fridays is oftentimes after we would fly the practice session, that's when we would meet with the Make-A-Wish Foundation oh, families. Yeah. I always like recharged my batteries on those days. You know, it was just, I don't know. Yeah. 
Make-A-Wish Foundation consistently like the Thunderbirds did was extraordinary. It was good for the soul. Um, so Saturdays and Sundays, we would fly the actual air show itself. Um, during those days, we would still be doing things like visiting a children's hospital or maybe meeting with the local Girl Scouts. I'd always try to meet with the Civil Air Patrol cadets, right? Huh? Yeah. Um, and then on Monday, we would leave the show site and fly home. On Tuesday, we would practice at home and mission plan, right, for the whole, you know, next week. So people always think, oh, you're Thunderbird. You must have someone do all of your own navigation and mission planning and flight planning and all your tanker coordination. They do that for you. No way, Jose. <laughs> we do that all ourselves in-house. I was uh, my very first year the navigation officer. So uh, it goes to the youngest, newest guy on the team. And I did all of the tanker cell coordination, all of our form 70s, all of our flip charts, all of that. I was also the budget officer and finance officer my first year. So I ran the budget for all 125 of us out traveling and such. Um, and then my second year, I became the stand of Al officer. So I was the one who was giving the um, check rides to the other pilots. So we were uh, 16 pilots. We still had to maintain normal Air Force currencies yeah. to safely fly the plane. So right. that stuff didn't stop either. Um, and so I was the one that was giving the check rides to to the other pilots. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're still in the military. So you're still. You're, heck yeah. yeah, we are <laughs> still in the military. Right. Yeah. So Tuesdays is when we do all that, right? We'd catch yeah. up on all the administrative state of stuff. And then Wednesdays, ah. Oh, Wednesdays was when you were home and all it meant was pulling your luggage in front of your washer and dryer, <laughs> washing, drying, refolding, repacking and leaving wow. the next day. Yeah. A lot. It is a lot. It is tiring. Um, I was married at the time with no kids. So that made it easier. I admire the heck out of Thunderbirds officer and enlisted who endure that grind, who also have larger families and children yeah. in the picture. It's, it's an extraordinary sacrifice for the entire family. But it's worth it. But it's a sacrifice. Yeah. What is that? So on the Make-A-Wish you were mentioning, is that something you did every Friday at air shows? I would say it was the, the majority of the Fridays at air shows. It certainly de depended on the cities we were in. Generally speaking, we were around larger cities. And, and when we did, um, the Air Force Thunderbirds Public Affairs team is just extraordinary at what they do. And so they would do the community outreach and there had been a long-standing relationship with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and the Thunderbirds. And so it was always, it was always just really neat because on Fridays, you know, it's not like you'd have a big crowd or a big audience. You might have the military people and families who are on base, but they'd always have this section kind of roped off for the Make-A-Wish kids and, and families. And when we would land, we would go over and just answer their questions and take pictures and have a good time. So it was, like I said, it was good for the soul. That's awesome. Yeah. Just ignore me right now. I'm trying to put a battery in my camera over here. It died on me. <laughs> Got to recycle your generators, huh? Yeah. To then um, after that, or how does that work after your two-year like contract or whatever is? Up? Yeah. So uh, you know, as Natalie said, you're still in the military, right? I had pinned on major uh, while I was at the Thunderbirds. At that time, um, when I left the Thunderbirds, it was time to go do something called. Uh, Gosh, IDE, Intermediate Developmental Education. Anyways, I had to spend a year non-flying, career broadening. So I, I got this, I got introduced to this program called the White House Fellowship. It's the President's Leadership Development Program. 
for mid-career professionals. Uh, they do accept military applications. So as I was decompressing from leaving the Thunderbirds, I had a, a several month period at Nellis where I was kind of just doing regular staff work. And I was looking into this White House fellowship and I thought, wow, that would be just totally outside my lane, totally outside my comfort zone. It just seems cool. I would love to meet people my age, mid-career from other industries, yeah. um, see what the outside world looks like. Yeah. Um, I thought there was no chance in heck that I would be chosen, but I enjoyed the challenge and rigor of the application process. So I thought, what's it going to hurt? Yeah. So by going through and answering this very in-depth application for the White House Fellowship, it was a time of good self-reflection. Mm. You know, who am I now that I've finished this kind of Thunderbird thing? What's next? What do I want to accomplish? Where can I make the best impact? What can I learn? Um, so the application helped me through that. Uh, and I applied thinking there's no way I'll ever get picked. Well, I got picked. So <laughs> not really sure how that happened to this day. Uh, what an honor and a privilege. And I headed to Washington, D.C. for a year. The cohort that I was with uh, was extraordinary. Teachers, scientists, lawyers, uh, finance, bankers, doctors. They taught me about leadership and teamwork from a completely different perspective. We could do an entire podcast on the White House relationship too, Natalie. I, I can't, I can't say enough good things about it. Yeah. So I know that there was a medical thing. <laughs> That's putting it very nicely. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to talk about what happened and how that must have been like challenging for you to accept, I would say, right? Yeah, it was de- it was devastating. And, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you now and it still feels devastating at times because I'm human. So yeah. let's see. I left the White House Fellowship and found myself back at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base where I had the single greatest assignment of my career. Right. So we've talked about cool things. Yeah, the Thunderbirds, cool things. Yeah, the White House. But nothing compares to having the honor of commanding the 333rd Fighter Squadron. Being a fighter squadron commander in the Air Force as a lieutenant colonel is the single coolest thing you could do. Like it was my career goal and things were going great. And I had the best squadron, not just the air crew that I flew with, but their families. Uh, Just the opportunity was unreal. So I'm going to make sure I thought, okay, so you, after you finished your three years with the Thunderbirds, then you went to the White House and how long were you there? Uh, I was a White House fellow for one year. Then I went to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base and, you know, was a lieutenant colonel, kind of doing lieutenant colonel things. And that's where I was selected for squadron command. Okay. And it was there that I started to feel sick. So towards the end of my command, I had started feeling like I had the summer flu. It was like July. I had a low grade fever, aches, pains, malaise. About a month into it, I got a rash on my hip and I went to the doctor and I said, hey, I feel like crap. Uh, I took myself off the flying schedule. You know, things aren't right. Um, They tried to figure out what was wrong with me um, and couldn't. They thought maybe it was a virus. So I got back into the cockpit, flew a couple more sorties and said, my brain is not right. Um, My cross check is not good. My multitasking is not good. I can't prioritize anymore. So here I am at the height of my career, the height of my experience, 2000 plus hours as a fighter pilot. And there I had a a flight and, you know, I haven't really shared this very much publicly, but these are the facts. I was coming back leading a four ship at F-15E's coming back from a training sortie over the Atlantic and air traffic control says, hey, 
you know, here's a heading and altitude change. It was a VFR blue sky day, simple heading and altitude change. And I could not remember where the mic switch was. Wow. And once I figured it out, it was like slow motion. Once I keyed the mic, I couldn't open my mouth. I didn't know what to say. So at that point, I grounded, uh, grounded myself. And uh, that was hard, right? I'm finishing yeah. up a man as a fighter squadron. and I'm grounded. Doctors can't figure it out. I remember my last flight. Uh, they let me have a finny flight. They put a instructor pilot in my back seat. So they gave me the honor of, of having that last flight. And I remember saying, this is my last flight. And all my friends said, no, no, Nicole, it's not. It's not. But in my soul, like something deep, I knew I was sick. And so it really was my last flight. Uh, headed off to Naval War College this whole time dealing with medical issues, graduated from there, came back to the Pentagon. I'm now a Colonel Select. So we all have to go to the Pentagon, right? Live in the basement, type PowerPoint presentations. (laughs) And this whole time I'm getting sicker and sicker. Um, The doctors are still saying, we don't really know what's wrong with you. Um, I have been through the medical ringer by this point. I thought, well, maybe I just need to try something new, right? Because a lot of times, I'll be honest, they were like, well, maybe you've just been too high speed. Maybe you need to slow down. Maybe it's stress, right? And I'm like, God, I've been through every test in the world. They had sent me to Johns Hopkins, the Mayo Clinic, all of these places. No one could figure it out. So this opportunity came by to go back to the White House. So the first time I served under George Bush, This time is now the uh, last year of the Obama administration. So this is 2015. So they called and said, hey, we've got this opportunity for you to run this White House national level initiative called Joining Forces. Um, It was designed by Mrs. Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden uh, to take care and shine a light on everything related to service members, veterans and military families. It was awesome. It was impossible to pass up this opportunity. Yeah. And so I went over there and I had a great time. And I got through that year, barely. So the last two months of it, I started having issues reading and writing. And uh, they asked me to stay on. Do you know what it's like to tell (laughs) the First Lady of the United States that you can't extend your tour because you're sick? That was a a rough moment. And uh, I left the White House in May of 2016, went back to the Pentagon and rapidly declined in my health. At my worst, I had a list of 63 symptoms impacting every system in my body. And in August of 2016, I woke up and I was temporarily locked in. So I woke up in my house. I couldn't move or speak. It didn't last long, but I would have these moments of temporary paralysis. Very scary. At that point, the Air Force did right by me and sent me up to Boston, Massachusetts, where I got to some pretty special hospitals where they diagnosed me and started treating me. Yeah. So my whole career ended overnight. I am a survivor of late stage neurologic tick-borne illness. Wow. It almost sounds crazy, right? This this tough fighter pilot with this really cool career. Uh, I was completely destroyed and completely broken uh, and almost killed uh, by a tick bite. Wow. Um, Yeah. This is a long story. I need to shush. But yeah, that's that's what happened, man. So uh, I spent the next nine months in bed. I had a home health care nurse, uh, struggled to talk. I could not read or write. I struggled to walk. I spent another year in rehab to learn to walk safely. So I was two years of my life gone. And during that time, I was medically retired from the military. So here I am on the outside. I've been uh, medically retired for two years now. Thanks to my doctors in Boston, I have um, regained a lot of my functionality, not all of it. I have a wonderful quality of life, 
and um, very happy where I'm at. The only thing that upsets me is I can't pass an FAA medical. <laughs> well, I can't imagine what that must have been like. That had to have been really, really challenging, difficult to accept and even go through. Yes. You know, like, why is this happening to me? You know, I, I, it was absolutely, it was terrifying because it was a life and death situation. It was overnight. My, my whole family was thrust into this. You know, my twins were like five at the time, six at the time it was scary for them. Um, my husband became my caregiver overnight. I lost my identity overnight. I lost my uniform overnight. I lost my dream since I was five overnight. I lost my means for providing for my family. And, um, you know, on December 29th, 2017, my official date, my retirement, I was all alone at home. And I had a pity party. You bet. To this day, I struggle to read and write. Um, to this day, I have what's called labyrinthian dysfunction. It's a balance deficit. So ironically, I can get air sick and car sick. Like, it's kind of funny. It's okay to laugh. Um, yeah. And I have major autonomic nervous system. <laughs> I know the irony is good. It's just the universe and God keeping me humble. That's okay. Yeah. I still deal uh, with that stuff. And I was like, God, you know, who am I? What am I going to do? How do I provide for my family? You know, what was my contribution in all of this? And one day it just hit me, Nicole, the words came to my mind, yield to overcome. You got to yield to overcome. You didn't choose this. You didn't ask for it. It's not your fault. Yielding isn't quitting, giving up or surrendering. It's about acceptance. And it, instead of asking and saying, what can't you do? Like, no one will hire me. I can't read or write. I can't go to the airlines because I can't pass a medical. I had to switch my mindset. The real question was, what can you do? And I can talk again. I regained my ability to speak, literally. I needed to be with people. I have stories to share. And that's how I launched my new business. And I remind people a lot, you know, when they talk about overcoming adversity and, you know, Nicole, how'd you reinvent yourself? I tell them that the runway behind you is always unusable. All you ever have is the runway in front of you. And that was the mindset I had as we went through this, this crazy, unexpected transition. Well, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. I would say, you know, there's, there's a bright side, you know, <laughs> you're learning, probably learned a whole lot about yourself and really, you know, your family probably really came together and grew closer through it. And yeah. Um, so it, tell it, me about, yeah, yeah it, gives you it gives you clarity of purpose. I'll tell you that clarity yeah. of what's important to you. Right. Um, yeah, no, it had all worked out for the best. The whole coronavirus thing, everyone is really like, all of a sudden we're super focused on just taking care of our families and keeping everybody healthy, you know? Absolutely. And I get asked that a lot through my business, like, Nicole, like, how are you handling, you know, just the shelter in place? I'm like, dude, I'm on day 30. I laid in bed for 22 hours a day for nine months. Like, this is, I got this. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we'll get through this. You know, uh, like any other challenge in life, they're always temporary. And this too is temporary. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do now? What is your business? Sure. So I launched Nicole Malachowski and Associates LLC um, two years ago. Uh, people ask me, who are the associates? The answer is all of you. Okay. Um, yeah. so I, I want to be an associate. <laughs> I'm a business of one. Um, so the way that I help provide for my family is uh, I give keynote speeches. Uh, I talk about a variety of things in those speeches, mostly to Fortune 500 companies that involve uh, handling change, overcoming adversity. I also talk about elite team performance, teamwork and trust. 
And then on the side, I sometimes pick up some consulting uh, gigs. So that CEO of a company will see me speak, have further questions, and that may lead into an additional project. The beauty of all of this is that my husband and I are both retired. So we have very lucky to have double pension. So I don't speak or do consulting full time. Um, where my passion is and the vast majority of my effort is I have now become a patient advocate um, for tick-borne illnesses. So I sit on two government panels, I sit on two nonprofit panels, and I sit on two academic boards in order to make a difference and increase research and funding so that other people, especially children, don't have to endure what I went through with tick-borne illness. So I never in a million years thought my life impact would be this, but I'm very proud to be a patient advocate. And that's what I do these days. That's awesome. And you probably, I mean, hopefully you understand that your journey being a fighter pilot and a Thunderbird put you in a position where people really do respect you and want to hear what you had to say. So you have a platform and you're able to to talk about that. People will listen. I have an opportunity to give voice to the voiceless. And, And when I say voiceless, I literally mean people who were as sick as me who lost their ability to speak, read and write. And so to your point, I do have a platform and a reputation that I can leverage to the benefit of other people. And that's really what I'm trying to do. Um, There's a there's a other part of that, which is I used to think that my legacy, my life was that I was going to be known as a fighter pilot or that maybe I would become a general officer in the military. Obviously, that all ended. I realized now as a patient advocate that I was a fighter pilot, an officer, not as an end to itself to learn the skills and strengths I needed to one, survive the illness, but two, to learn the skills and the strengths I need in order to make a difference for other patients now. So this is actually where I was always supposed to be. Well, that just gave me like chills. That's awesome. (laughs) I'm very happy happy where I'm at. Um, So I wrote down some questions while I was sitting here um, when you were talking and I was listening to your, to your story. So how did you, the the pressure must have been immense. And I would say with any fighter pilot, it, it's probably a lot of pressure, not just for you. So what, how do you deal with that? And how did you deal with that? Or do they teach you how to deal with that? What do they go into any of that? Cause that's a lot of, a lot of pressure. Are you talking about being just a fighter pilot yeah. or flying in combat? Fighter yeah. pilot and flying in combat. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Look, it's not easy to become an Air Force pilot. It's certainly not easy um, to become an Air Force fighter pilot. It is challenging. And, you know, maybe sometimes people will use the word elite, I guess. It takes a certain type of person, right? Someone who's very committed. Um, I think the Air Force does a great job of teaching their fighter pilots about, well, and pilots like you, you guys can relate to this, right? It's all about discipline. It's all about going back to muscle memory. It's all about going back to the foundational basics, right? Um, They teach you about focus, right? They teach you how to compartmentalize to that mission or that target or that person you're talking to on the ground right at that moment, and you can block out everything else. They teach you how to multitask and task prioritize. Um, So it's no different, I think, than what you're doing in your plane. Yeah, Okay, it's done at maybe a faster speed and it's done in an environment where maybe people are shooting at you. And I can appreciate that. Yeah. But the foundational basics are the same, right? Discipline, focus, and then obviously the teamwork. You know, we never fly alone in the Air Force as fighter pilots. 
you always have a wingman. And that's vital um, to helping you keep that discipline and that focus. That's vital to us, you know, getting that mission done. So those are foundational traits that are kind of inculcated into us at a very young age, very early on, you know, that serve you well when you do find yourself maybe in, in the more intense moments of something like combat. You know, and when you were talking, it made me think so much about when I had young kids and I'd be driving the car and they're talking and singing and playing and I'm trying to have a conversation with like my dad or something in the front seat and he is so distracted by it. And I'm like, oh, I'm not even, I can't even hear them. I mean, really, it's just so like background noise to me. You do, you get used to tuning out everything that's not super important to what you're doing right now. Right. The task prioritization of it all, because the thing that gets pilots in trouble, um, the things that can learn to lead to tragedy is right. Task saturation. Right. And so that's something I think that we openly talked about a lot in training. So like you just pointed out, you know, a good example of task prioritization, right. Maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, (laughs) take the proper action and land as soon as conditions permit doing everything in a very focused disciplined step-by-step way uh, is what keeps you safe so what other things did what did you find most challenging about your time uh in the military flying what like check rides you had mentioned that would you say that was one of your most stressful things Oh, I mean, I wouldn't consider, I mean, I didn't enjoy check rides, but in the big scheme of like a career as a fighter pilot, that wasn't something that I I thought about, you know, or focused in on. Um, I think when you consider challenges, it didn't have to do maybe with flying or being a fighter pilot. I think uh, the challenges of, I hate to use the phrase work-life balance because I honestly don't believe it exists, but the challenge of just trying to juggle my husband's military career, juggle the timing of having children, juggle do I stay in for 20 or do I get out now and go to the airlines, that that kind of life planning within the context of this larger Air Force system that says you have to do this and that at a certain time, um, that felt very restrictive at times. And so that was a challenge. I think when I think of challenges too, I think of myself as a squadron commander. So I've got all these wonderful aircrew, totally elite, high-performing, skillful, patriotic Americans. And it was at a time when our Air Force was, uh, you know, like today, undermanned, under-resourced, overworked. The challenges of trying to get them what they needed for their professional development, the challenge of trying to make sure that they and their families were cared for, that's when I felt moments of stress. That's pretty amazing. I'm so impressed with uh, with your journey and well, I think mostly what I'm impressed with is your vision so young because I just did not have any clue what I wanted to do when I was young. I was always been kind of a very like fly by the seat of my pants kind of person to see what happens. <laughs> well, you know, some people, you know, figure it out at a young age. Some people don't. I, you know, that F4 Phantom, it just made an indelible mark in my brain. And and that was that. But like I said, having a goal and speaking a goal is very important. But giving yourself enough grace to know that that goal can change yeah. as you go through life is equally important. So I agree. I agree. Yeah. And one of the things that I always like, if I'm thinking that I like, for example, I want to go on a diet or I'm thinking I want to do that freaking burpee challenge we did. Once I say it, 
Like I know I'm committed to it. So mm-hmm. I have to really think about, okay, do I really want to say this out loud? So when you say it out loud, then you really have to prove that you can do it, you know? Well, and not only when you say it out loud, you become accountable to yourself, but you become accountable to the others who heard you. Right. You know, that, that's your tribe that's going to help you achieve that goal, which yeah. is cool. So what um, what's on the horizon for you? What's the what's your plans um, going forward, building your business and speaking more? Is that kind of your goal? Yeah, I don't know that I need to build or speak more than than I do. Um, I definitely need to uh, over these next few months, figure out how I can transition my business to a more online um, virtual uh, platform. So thank you for letting me be here today with you because I'm learning things um, about different online platforms and how to do interviews like this. So you've already uh, taught me something. Yeah. I that. <laughs> um, and I, I definitely um, want to keep uh, growing and doing more in patient advocacy space. Um, we worked really hard as a tick-borne illness community to pass the K Hagen Tick Act this last December which uh, got $150 million for tick-borne illness research, which is the most we've ever had in history for this illness. Wow. Unfortunately, um, with appropriations and coronavirus, yeah. that money hasn't materialized yet. So right now I'm really focused on seeing that helping our community as a tribe do my little part to try to get that $150 million of research funding over the, over the you know, finish line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. I think that's great that there's someone that is educated about it and kind of knows what the needs are because I wouldn't know at all. You know, it's just a blessing. Yeah. I've got an honorary PhD in tick-borne illness. And if you had told me that 10 years ago, I would have laughed at you. Um, But it is an epidemic. Uh, People need to do their tick checks every day. It's a very serious, um, if not caught early, it can lead to a very severe and chronic disability. Um, so we want to try to prevent that. So prevent the bite by doing your tick checks every day. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember actually when it happened? Do you have any idea when you actually, you do? Yeah, I sure do. So um, I was uh, bit basically in my backyard in Goldsboro, North Carolina. I never saw the tick, but I did end up getting um, the classic bullseye rash. Um, that's the rash I told you about. I showed the doctor. Unfortunately, at that time, neither he nor I were educated on that. So um, we missed it, which is what allowed the bacteria to eventually um, impact my brainstem a few years later because the bacteria kind of went untreated and unabated um, within my body. But I want to make a point, only about 50 to 70 percent of people who get Borrelia, which is the technical term for this bacteria, Lyme is what you would call it. Yeah. Um, only about 50 to 70% ever get a rash. So what I do with patient advocacy as education is try to get rid of some of those myths. You know, the myth that you don't have Lyme disease if you don't have a rash, that's technically and scientifically proven not to be true. Hmm. You know, the myth that you have to be out camping or hiking in tall grass to get bit by a tick, that, that's, that's not true. So I enjoy working on some of these nonprofit uh, boards because we do a lot of public education and awareness. And there's a lot of myths out there about tick-borne illness that we need to um, need to crush. So tell me on a whole other note, how do you know Aaron? Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> Aaron Miller is just a powerhouse, isn't she? I love I, her. Just what a wonderful human being. What a great American. What a just a wonderful person. When I was a White House fellow, Okay, so this was that 2008, 2009, right after the Thunderbirds. 
I had an opportunity in Washington, D.C. This fellowship's extraordinary. Okay, so I was exposed to things and present at things that I had no business being at. Yeah. I could open doors. I had no business opening. Okay. Uh Um, At that time, uh, I got into a conversation with a women Air Force service pilot, a wasp by the name of Deanie Parrish. Oh, yeah. We were talking. Yeah, her and her daughter Nancy at wingsacrossamerica.org. So yeah. if your listeners can go to wingsacrossamerica.org, it'd be great. Yeah. We got a conversation how uh, the injustices that the WASP had to face when they were unceremoniously disbanded, you know, the fact that they had to struggle for veteran status and benefits and and even worse, right? That their entire contribution was like written, it was not written in the history books. It was completely missing. Just it was ridiculous. Yeah. So Dee Parrish and I were kind of sharing a gin and tonic one day. Uh, and she said, <laughs> you're Miss Fancy Pants. You know, you're working at the White House. Why don't you do something about it? So long story short, one of the civilian White House fellows, remember I told you the importance of learning from people outside of your industry, yeah. said, well, let's do something about it. So she helped me with this plan. Very long story, but I drafted Senate Bill 614 from the fourth floor of my condo in Northern Virginia, which was to award the Congressional Gold Medal to the Women Air Force Service Pilots of World War II. Obviously, you know, that's the highest civilian honor you can get. It wasn't because they cared about recognition or some big medal around their neck. They didn't. Um, It was to correct the record. Yeah. It was to make sure that their history and their story was told never to again be undone. And so, as you know, the lovely Erin Miller, her grandmother, was a wasp and a friend of mine. And so that is where our destinies intertwined. Fast forward when Aaron Miller um, courageously led the fight uh, to change the rules so the wasp could rightfully be buried at Arlington, our lives intersected again. So there you have it. The Women Air Force Service pilots, they brought us together. Yeah, isn't that cool? That's so cool. Yeah, I think Erin's amazing. And remember, you know, she still serves right at the Department of Veterans Affairs. She's still taking care of service members and veterans. She's just a great person. Yeah. I think you could write about 12 books. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's funny. Thank you for saying that. I probably need to write one, but um, I I, I can't really read and write very well. So I got to find myself a a, a very patient ghostwriter. (laughs) Yeah, well, or I bet there's some kind of, I have no idea, but I'm assuming there's some kind of dictation thing that you can do as well. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You could probably record everything. You could do audiobooks, and then they have them printed. Yeah. Y'all are smart. Y'all, see, y'all are teaching. Well, I got to. Giving you other things to do. <laughs> you're so tech savvy. Not only do you fly airplanes, but you're totally tech savvy. Oh, yeah. Um, of all trades. <laughs> I don't know how tech savvy I am. I'm learning as I go, but um, how's uh, how's the homeschooling going? Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> well, that's got to be challenging for you because of your reading and writing, and so yes, yeah. Thank, thank you for acknowledging that. Having an invisible illness can sometimes be very frustrating, um, especially when people learn my background. They're like, there's no way that you can't read or write, and I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I can do it. It's just with extreme effort and it takes me four to five times the amount of time prior from what I was prior. But anyways, um, my kids have had such a great attitude. They're nine year old twins. They get on their computers. They move out on their own. They only raise their hand and ask questions when they need it. I have been so lucky. Um, both of their teachers 
have been so patient and afforded the kids so much grace that it's actually gone really well. Now, I as a mom stress, am I doing enough? You know, sometimes technology, getting on the right platform or uploading a document or whatever can be stressful and such. When they ask me about math and it's common core math. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's when I have to bring in my husband. (laughs) He's much more patient and better at that. But between my husband and I, we're getting it done. But I got to tell you, my kids are doing 90 percent of it themselves. It's so they're so I just love them. They're just doing great. (laughs) Awesome. I know that common core math is freaking hard. I don't understand it. Just carry the one. It's so easy. No. Carry the one. Like, I don't understand this. Why can't you just do it the way you're supposed to do it? <laughs> well, you know, the theory behind it, right, is that they're not just memorizing, that they're actually understanding the why. Yeah. Visualizing the why behind the math. And yeah, I can appreciate it, but it uh, it's hard for me. I'll tell you that. I never knew that. I my kids were making a joke this morning at lunch. They're like, we should have a show mom called, are you smarter than a fourth grader? Ha ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) My kids would win. Pretty sure of it. Either either of your children, do they, um, are they interested in flying at all? Or do do you see any interests in that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, My kids are, uh, they are at the age now where they are aware. And I think they do have an appreciation for the fact that both my husband and I flew the F-15E. They definitely know that mommy, you know, was a Thunderbird pilot. Um, My daughter is not impressed. She could care less. No. Yeah. Yeah. uh, She's so funny. She's super creative, really good at math and science and wants to be an architect. And so a lot of her interests and the things that we do have to do with drawing and design and building things, um, which is amazing. My son, on the other hand, and they're twins, but they are complete opposites in personality. He loves airplanes, right? Like his dream right now is to be a C-130 pilot in the Coast Guard, which I think is amazing. I'm like, that's wonderful. He has an obsession, this is funny, um, with the Blue Angels. (laughs) So, like, if I'm cooking dinner or something, he'll be like, Mom, can we get on YouTube and watch a Blue Angels air show? Um, For Christmas this last year, he's like, Mom, can I get a Blue Angels sweatshirt? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Here I am, the reluctant Thunderbird pilot, um, buying all this Blue Blue Angels gear. (laughs) I love it. Oh, I mean, so he is interested in planes. He loves the Blue Angels. I love the Blue Angels, of course. Yeah, I think yeah. it's it's fun to be able to talk with him. Um, he's funny though because he's super proud of me. For it's it's cute. Like we'll go to the grocery store and we'll be checking out at the cash register. Another you know, poor cash, you know, register lady cashier. She'll be scanning our fruits and vegetables, and he'll be like, "Hey, uh, you know, my mom's famous." He'll say this. <laughs> <laughs> They'll say she was the first woman Thunderbird pilot. And like, you know, we have to remember if you're not into aviation, you know, 99% of the human race has no idea who the Thunderbirds are. So these people are just staring at him and staring at me. And he's like, it's really cool. She was the first. And he, I don't want to squash him and like the fact that he's proud of me. It's super sweet. But at the same time, I'm looking at this person. I'm like, but he's totally into it, which um, it's cute. It's funny. Yeah. You said something um, about. I took, uh, I think he was, he was like a PR person one time. And I want to say he was in his late forties, maybe early fifties and took him to sun and fun in Florida. Yeah. Um, he was doing some filming and stuff for me and he had never been to an air show. 
wow. Yeah. And I was like, how can this be possible? I don't understand how an American could never have gone to an air show. <laughs> I hadn't even been to an air show until six months after I got my private pilot's license. Oh, man. Right. But I mean, you know, there's yeah. 325 million people in America. There's 7.5 billion in this world. I mean, yeah. the air show culture is amazing and it's unique. Um, it's full yeah. of some talented people, but it's still its own. Right. Yeah. You know, ecosystem. Oh, yeah, totally. And it's quite small, really, when you think about it, you know. It is. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. It was so interesting and you're super sweet and just really entertaining. And I hope everything goes well with your your new business and try to enjoy the time with your kids. You know, I had mentioned that I homeschooled one of my boys for a little while and it was just a really good time to get to know him. So hopefully that'll be a positive experience for, for you and your husband, and your whole family. Well, thank you for that. And I, uh, I agree with you. Um, I just want to say thank you for, you know, sharing the stories about aviation, um, letting young women know that this is in the art of the possible for them. And, you know, you have my gratitude for, you know, removing some of those barriers, you know, for women to go into aviation through the scholarships um, that you give. So I believe in the work that you guys are doing and um, you have my, my support for sure. So thank you. Thank you very much. So thanks for listening to uh, this episode of Cockpits and Cocktails. Uh, please stay tuned for the next episode. We really appreciate Nicole coming on here. Make sure you follow her and learn about what she's doing for those that have don't have a voice and that really need help getting their you know, therapy and overcoming this illness. Thank you very much, Nicole. Thank you both. Have a good one. And thank you for serving too. And say that as well. I know it's a, it's a sacrifice. So I appreciate that. That's kind of you. I appreciate too. And hopefully you guys will go fly one for me. Okay. Okay. All right. Hopefully our paths will cross someday. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. All right. Good night. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to Cockpits and Cocktails with your hosts Natalie Flygirl Kelly and Fly Alyssa. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us next time for a lively discussion on aviation, aerospace, the air travel industry, and all things flight related. Aerospace and the air travel industry. Let it go to my head, I